Okay, are you ready? This is Crystal here in the studio, Tuesday afternoon, first day of summer. Welcome, welcome. Hope you are either coming back from the beach or still at the beach with the radio on or going to the beach this afternoon because we're here in Honolulu enjoying this wonderful aloha. So today I have two guests, as I had mentioned, in the studio, and it's very rare to get visiting guests all the way from Hong Kong. So of course I took advantage of this time to have a chat with this wonderful couple who are in the film work milk making world. And, um, and they're not here just because of filmmaking. I don't know about how much I'm supposed to uh, uh, share about their uh, private lives, but <laughs> they are a husband and wife team. Ruby Yang is a filmmaker, an Oscar-winning filmmaker, documentary. In fact, the first uh, female filmmaker from Hong Kong who ever won an Oscar. Oscar. And uh, Ruby can correct me if I'm wrong. But let me just give a little background of Ruby and her husband, Lambert, who are both here equally on their own rights to talk about their world, their work, and the transnational experiences going back and forth from Hong Kong to um, China to make films and living in San Francisco for many years and carving a little place here in Honolulu. So first of all, welcome Ruby and Lambert to KTUH. You. Thank you. And let me just give a little background for people who don't know these wonderful people. As I said, Ruby is a filmmaker. Now, she worked on a range of features and documentary films exploring Chinese themes as a director, producer, and editor. As I had mentioned earlier, as well as her Academy Award was for a documentary short subject under the title The Blood of Yingzhou District, and that was in 2007. She was also known for her featured documentary, Citizen Hong Kong, and the award-winning documentary, My Voice, My Life. I'm going to go into a little bit more of her details as we unravel our conversation, but I'm going to stop there, and I'm going to introduce Lambert. So Lambert is a pioneer in the field of film distribution. In Hong Kong, he co-founded the Phoenix Cinematique, one of the first cinema clubs to show international art house films in the city. Moving here to the U.S. in the 1970s, he became one of the first people to bring cinema of greater China to North America. And I understand um, you both uh, lived in San Francisco for quite a long time and now live in Hong Kong because, Ruby, you teach at Hong Kong University in the journalism department, correct? Yes. Okay. And Lambert, I, I don't even know. I, I forgot to ask you to bring, you know, you have this book that you both helped publish recently. We're going to talk a little bit about that, a, yes. a compilation of th these beautiful archival images and material of Hong Kong from what area, era? Uh, 50s and 60s. 50s and 60s. 60s yes. Cantonese film. Cantonese film. Was that the height of Hong Kong films, would you say? Different, uh, I think. different era. I mean, for that time, uh, it's the height uh, of Hong Kong film era. Uh, to the 80s, and then the, um, action film, John Woo or Wong Kar Wai's film, and become important uh, for Hong Kong cinema. Right. So a different type of peak, yes. if you will. That, uh, that peak was for the Cantonese film before they called it Hong Kong film. Because that time, they they call it Cantonese-speaking film. But in the 70s, then they changed it to Gong Chan Pin. It's like really Hong Kong, 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 Kong film. Yeah, so, you know, we have to, I guess, um, introduce all these concepts to our Honolulu listeners about Hong Kong, which is why we're here, is to really talk about maybe Hong Kong when you were living there 
before you kind of came back to the States and moved in around, and also your relationship to China, because I think it's a very, obviously, we all know it's a very um, precarious time, uh, the relationship between China and the U.S. and the relationship between Hong Kong and China, right? Uh, so having been doing projects in China, as well as living in Hong Kong, growing up in Hong Kong, and then living extensively in, in California, it must affect your perspective on many, many issues. And I'm not sure where to start with it because there are so many ways we can crack into it. Um, perhaps we can start with um, your first living in the U.S. because you grew up in Hong Kong, correct? Yes. And so you moved to the States in the, well, Lambert, you were there in the 70s, but Ruby, you weren't there till when? 77. Oh, well, okay. I, I was 74. Okay. So more or less the second time we grew up in U.S different perspective than we grew up in Hong Kong. Yes. Because uh, uh, in Hong Kong, it's quite traditional education. Mm. When we were in San Francisco, it's more open. So we learn a lot uh, from the school in San Francisco, kind of freedom, uh, expression, and to work in film. And Ruby was uh, a painter. So she. Oh, we went to an art school, so it was very different from the traditional way of um, education. Education, and it's totally opened my eyes actually about you know you know freedom and uh, freedom of expression. So when you were growing up, your parents did they not encourage you to pursue arts? Uh, not at all. Um, well, especially my mom, she always wanted me to get a business degree. <laughs> okay, and you did not do that? No. <laughs> so even going into films was something that was quite challenging for your parents to accept? Yes, yeah. Actually, I have to set, uh, satisfy them by going to uh, film, uh, business school for two years. Oh, you did? Yes. Okay. And then I changed to... Uh, Actually, I studied business minor in arts. So when I switched to the U.S., then I totally switched into arts. Okay. So, I mean, so they, once I moved to the U.S., I yeah. mean, I think they lost control of me. <laughs> As one should. This reminds me, um, when I interviewed Helen Zia, who is also a documentary filmmaker and academic, she was talking about how her parents wanted her to be in medicine. So she actually went to medical school for a while, but she hated it and then she quit and wanted to be a journalist and they didn't really support that so i don't know i mean i don't want to generalize a lot of expectations that a lot of asian families have of their children of wanting them to go into certain uh, occupations for security for financial support you know all these things so um maybe that is a problem even now do you think i don't i think it's much better now because um now I, I'm teaching at uh, University of Hong Kong at um, teaching documentary production. So I have a lot of students from China that they're not taking the traditional sort of path. They, they study um, documentary filmmaking. They go into journalism. And so I'm surprised. It's usually the parents will let them study business or have a more traditional way of, um, you know, you know, architecture, yeah. not necessarily 
uh, it doesn't medical. have to be medical or law. Yeah, you know. There are other, but yeah. not the arts. It's still shunned on, right? I mean, to be able to pursue a. a, a no, actually, when I went to China, when we went to China, we were very surprised about um, you know Chinese student going to into arts. Actually, it's very privileged. Huh. Only the rich and privileged family can go to arts because right. it's very expensive to buy paint. And and also people who go to film school in China and Beijing, they all come from very privileged right. background. And so it's totally opposite of the starving artist <laughs> versus starving artist <laughs> versus really, you know, you have a very wealthy background or, you know, of some background so that you can just do your own, yeah. pursue your own thing. So I was like, and and also that um, their school or little like tutoring school outside of the art academy that uh, teaches students how to get into the academy of arts. And they have to, the students have to pay a lot because they have to get portfolio and all that stuff. And there's yeah. only very few art academy in, in, there's one in Beijing, one in Hangzhou. It's very hard to get in. Mm. And just the brand yes. itself will maybe the woman can marry a better husband. <laughs> the guy can, you know, be a higher up in official. Who knows? But very different. Well, culture is, you know, respected, right, in, in, in Chinese culture. But realistically to to make a living off of it is another story but you mentioned it if you're privileged enough to have access to education to get into art schools you probably don't have to worry about making a living yes. if you're in that field to begin with right yes it, it but is, uh, yeah. in china a lot of painter make a lot of money oh, they're really? very very rich yes well isn't that a certain percentage of them? only we're not sure talking. but uh average uh, they can make really? money. Filmmaker like Zhang Yimao make yeah. a lot of money. Does he? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> we got to talk about that. Why don't we take a quick break? Uh, it is the three o'clock time. I have to um, make some announcements. But after that, we come back. I am talking here with Ruby Yang and Lambert Yam all the way from Hong Kong to talk about the film industry, all the juicy deals, you know, information we don't know about. Um, and also a time lapse going back into like 1970s, what that meant, what the Chinese um, filmmakers were like and experience. I want to know about your experience working in China during the time and why you cannot work there the way you did today. I think that's an interesting um, conversation. So don't go away. K2H Campus Events Calendars. UH Department of Art and Art History presents The Art Gallery, a 4,400-square-foot space exhibiting contemporary works by local and international artists. Programming for exhibitions includes lectures by artists and scholars, symposia, films, and tours. In addition to showcasing works of the BFA and MFA programs, The Art Gallery also organizes traveling exhibitions, many of which have been presented at more than 100 museums in the U.S., Mexico, Canada, Japan, Taiwan, and Guam. The Art Gallery is located on campus at 2535 McCarthy Mall. For directions, parking locations, and information about exhibitions and events, you can visit hawaii.edu slash art.
K2H Campus Events Calendars. For the University of Hawaii at Manoa Campus News, go to www.kaleo.org. Stay tuned in the next hour for the Concert Events Calendars. Don't have a radio? I'm not getting a sig on my beeper. You can always stream us live at ktuh.org. I'm listening. There's no monthly subscription to skip the commercials. We just don't play them. What the sound of that? We're KTUH FM, Honolulu. No commercials? No mercy! You know what I'm saying? That's the name of the song by really, really talented icon of the 70s in Hong Kong, Sam Hui. I'm here in the studio with Ruby and Lambert talking about Hong Kong and China and just transnational experiences around and, and, and historically how things have changed so much. So putting things into perspective, do both of you want to talk a little bit, give our audience a little idea of who Sam Hui is and what that song was about? Well, uh, it's about people who, uh, daily people who work and try to make a living and they have to go to work every day and, and hard life in Hong Kong and it, that's in the 70s. Sorry. So in the 70s, Hong Kong is not as prosperous as now. So everybody just, you know, try to make a living and, uh, and not talk about um, housing and Hong Kong ha was, wasn't a financial center yet, mm -hmm. so it's just at the crypts of you know becoming one, um, and 
transitional from uh, industrial small like manufacturing city to um, Manuf uh, to financial center. So before things were moved to China, before China was opening up, because China opened up in 1979, right. and things changed drastically in the 80s. But in the 80s, we were in San Francisco already. Uh, so you weren't there for that transformation. Yes. But what about before that, though? Because historically, when people were kind of escaping China to come to Hong Kong in the 60s, you were there for that. Yes. Oh, well, very small. We we don't know much. Uh, our parents never talk much about it. Oh. I mean, they are the generation uh, go through, uh, went through the Second World War. Right. So uh, they know the, how bad the war was and people suffer a lot. So that's why um, our parents uh, want uh, their children or our, their son and daughter to become more practical to be a doctor or a lawyer right. or accountant. I mean, my parents want me to be a doctor. Right. So, uh, so uh, I <laughs> study course. biology, chiropractic medicine. I want to be come here to study uh, medicine, but I, I, I'm very afraid of blood, so <laughs> I, can't, I can't take it anymore. And I love film when I was a kid. So I end up uh, go to school and learn more about film and filmmaking. And then how did your parents feel about that transferring uh, of occupation? My parents were more open. Uh, okay. They are school master, and they open uh, kindergarten and primary school. So they, especially my mom, said, uh, if something you will love, you like, yeah. go ahead and oh, do it. Really so I, I was lucky in that. Yeah, so. yeah. But back, uh, going back to, the, again, the 70s in Hong Kong, you know, as that song kind of reflected, um, I think the first song was, uh, was it called Da Gong Zai? So, but is the Da Gong Zai a lyric in that yeah, song? Yes, yes. Can you explain what that means? Uh, it's like, it's half, 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 Long. So it's the same thing. Like a half a pound. Versus uh, uh, eight ounces. It's the same same idea. Right. So it's the equal. So you um, I guess it's your struggle. You, you just go to work and you um, trying to balance your life. That's what it's about. You know, I think that's what's, you know, you, you figure out your life. So either way, it's a struggle, yes. no yeah. matter how you look at yes. it. Yes, yes. Yeah, I think that's really interesting because that title does it. It, it you know when you listen to the song, if you are from Hong Kong, it just brings you back to a time in Hong Kong yeah. that was so um, hardworking and pure. Uh, yes, and people were well, uh, there were photographs, you know, of, uh, of that period in the sixty and seventy. You can tell people were carrying rice, you know, that's uh, have a platform on their head, and they bicycled there. You know, to, to do delivery and um, people were simpler life, and yeah. people, young kids were reading on the sidewalk, uh, comic books, all those stuff. Yes. That's very, that's very sixties. And I, I my parents had a plastic uh, flower factory, so in the in very, very. Um, what area? It's Sanpo Gong oh, and so Aotao Gong. Local, 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 local area. Gong, industrial, oh, industrial wow. area. Okay. Yes. Yeah. So I remember I was very little. I, I because I have to, I guess you know there's no babysitter. So I, help you know, I helped. The, I went to the factory, and so that was an open sewage then at oh. the time. You know, in Otago, 
and so things were very basic. And then uh, my mom, um, so uh, the way is that I have to follow her all around to uh, collect plastic flowers from the family because at that time people have uh, to work, make extra income from right. uh, you know home. making f plastic sure. flowers and so I she had to collect all the flowers from the families and then bring it back to the factory and then have it all organized and right. ship it to the US that Woolworth or you know that oh Woolworth oh, I remember that yeah yes. Yes. okay yeah. so I, I know a lot of these sort of uh, grassroots families yes and been a lot of you know they, they call uh, estates housing estates so like from the projects kind yes. of equivalent yes. to yes. Yeah. yeah they yeah. get housing for the low income yeah. or because at that time there were uh, in the 50s and 60s a lot of refugees mm -hmm. so there's a lot of uh, you know wooden hut on the hillside right and before the you know the colonial government built housing for yes. the, the the you know these all these refugees because too many coming right. and so the squatter the, huts that's what they call yes. them right squatter yeah. Squatter. yeah and then then they, later on 60 they build uh, uh, the estate, right. a, estates yeah and then housing and they a lot of them now same story they don't have uh, elevators Elevator. so right. seventh floor i mean all those stuff i think i hated it when i was a kid too because all summer i have to work with my mom but now in flashback i like it i think it's really it's a background for making a documentary yes. because I'm so interested in people's lives. Yes. I think it's, you know, thinking back, it's those background that lay into me that, you know, I'm interested in the grassroots, interested in the underprivileged people. And it's a very um, specific life depicting, right? It's an everyday life yeah. in a very specific situation. Yeah. And so that's very powerful in the documentary is to have that. And that's what, I mean, that's a great segue to um, talk a little bit about your films because in China, the several films that you did were also very much a very specific topic in this rural village. Um, you know, I don't know if you want to kind of go into it, but uh, the, the one about the your, the your Oscar winning one, The Blood and what's interesting is the title in English is The Blood of Yingzhou District, but in Chinese, it's The Children of It. Yes. Well, um, The Blood is also about the, because it was the scandal, blood scandal, uh, because uh, and in the 80s, um, China was very poor, yes. especially in Anhui and Hunan. And so they, they a lot of people sell blood. It's, it's called the uh, plasma economy. Mm. So um, they use this very unsanitized uh, uh, way to collect blood, and then they collect the blood and draw the plasma, and then they put in all the same uh, blood type and put it in the same centrifuge, mm, mm, right. and then they re inject back into the people's body because then because there's no way to um, dispose the red blood cell, and they re inject back to the body. So that's why you know within that blood type, people might have hepatitis, might right. have HIV. And that so was the HIV era, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, and that was. That's why so many people die in, in Henan uh, village. And Henan is a very poor region of, of China in the 80s. Right. And, yeah. you know, we're talking, you're talking 80s. Your film was made in 2006. Six. And when I think our average American audience, when they think of China, you know, that was so far back that 
the rural time is something almost unimaginable, right? Uh, just a few decades ago. Well, China's speech is, uh, in the past three decades has it's gone just, so fast. Yeah. And when uh, we were there in in, in the uh, mid 2003, right. 2004. Early. So um, we worked with a lot of young people, and he told me, it's like, oh, two years and it's a new generation. And it's just like, okay. And then they are in the 20s. They said, I feel so old. Then when one uh, my one of my assistant um, he wants to be a journalist and he said if I it's by thirty if I'm not an editor of the newspaper I be I feel so old huh. and I'm not doing well enough so that's the pressure people face in China at that time in, right. the, in the early uh, in two thousand and um, for us is we learned so much during the. Uh, Eight years we were there, I felt eight years. You were there for eight, eight years. years. Yeah. Yes, we felt that we were living there for two decades because things were moving so fast. Right, right. The transition was just un unimaginable. Mm. But can we back up a little bit? I mean, so you were there for that amount of time after being in China. I went, no, you went to U.S. Yes, you came US. to the U.S. and then you moved to China yes. to yes. work on these films. Well, that's a long time in between. Yes. So after we graduated, and um, then I started editing uh, mostly in Chinese-American history films in, for PBS. Ah. And, and then, you know, because I'm interested in, you know, Ch Chinese-American life, Asian-American life. And also at that time in the early 80s, that's the start of the PBS program that have, um, you know, showing documentary about Asian-American. Can That's I ask it. you a question, though? I have I struggle with this. Uh, being Asian-American myself, but having lived in Hong Kong for quite a, you know, a formative amount of years, my half of my childhood was in Hong Kong, um, I, I find it very um, frustrating that there is such a difference in category between Asian-American and Asian. Like, there is no bridging. So in Hong Kong, if you're um, Asian-American, then they see you as a different category altogether. But if you think about the flow, the immigrant flow, the diaspora, the history of why people ended up in San Francisco, for example, it still connects you back to China. So we're all kind of connected, but why do we see ourselves in different categories? Why is it always an Asian American story or a specifically China story? Well, I, I see why, because, um, you know, working on, you know, a few of these um, Chinese American history film, because the old-time uh, Chinese-American or Asian-American, Japanese-American, they suffer a lot. I mean, they built really the, the lay the groundwork for people coming into the later immigrants who come into the uh, U.S. And not, you know, you have the exclusion uh, law, right. which repealed in the 1943. And then slowly, you know, have the war bride, people come, can get married and buy property. And so they were suffered a lot. And then when the newer immigrants came in the 80s, especially in the 80s, mm -hmm. the, like the Vietnam Chinese, right. and, and they, you know, and then the 60s, you have the, you know, civil rights movement and yes. then the Asian American movement in the 70s. They really, I mean, all these, really, all these movements help build the background for Asian American, American identity. identity. Yeah. Right. So, but the new new Asian came in without knowing the background, and so this is 
there's mm. a resentment. Yes, there is. I remember in college, yes. you're either part of the Chinese Ameri American. Chinese Student Association, which was only Taiwanese, yes. and then you have the American Chinese Association. Yes. So it was separate. You never yeah. even got yeah. together yeah. for yeah. any social gatherings. Yes. Well, I mean, also because it's very different. They have all very different background. But once you live here for over 10 years, 20 years, and then if you have kids, the kids will totally you know assimilated yes and then the you don't speak the language and yeah. so then i feel like you know when i first moved to hong kong people say oh guai muzai, guai muzai. they think yeah. oh you're, you're a western muzai, girl yeah. and that you don't know your culture yeah. but then you don't think about the context like i would grew up in san francisco i didn't choose yeah to you know i don't know yeah. i mean i feel like it's very interesting and complicated yeah. it's oh, very, very complicated, complicated. <laughs> very complicated yeah very complex. I mean, going back to China, yes. so we were, well, our identity for China was that you from uh, US. US, you are you're Chinese, Chinese. you're Hawaiian. So when they treated you, they treated you as yeah. a Hawaiian, yes. as, a, well, as a Western. Western, and they never treat you as, you know, local. China, local. And so they, they, they see Is that the, a good thing or a bad thing? I think it's a good thing in some ways. Yeah. Some way you pretend you don't know a lot of things. Right. You can pretend. Yeah. And you're outsider. You, you're outsider. Yeah. And, yeah. And so you get away with a little bit more. A little, little more, bit more. cushion. Okay. Yeah, a little bit more. And you can use that as an advantage. Right. Uh, and well, of course now no more. But when we were there, we, we, we use it as for our advantage. So going specifically to making of the film, uh, The Blood of Yingjiao District, um, you felt like you were in a privileged position to be able to access this village to be able to talk to them? Not privileged, though. Um, we were uh, being led by a local okay. person. And that local person actually um, she has a um, children association that helped the children who are affected by HIV yeah. AIDS. And this, um, that organization, our social society, was funded by David Ho in uh, the U.S. Oh. They funded them uh, for, because in Yunnan, they funded the mother-to-child transmission. Mm. Um, and so somehow uh, we're very lucky to have contact with this lady and she introduced us to this village is that because if you are filming in China if you don't have inside track yes. if you don't have the right introduction you can never go in right. and you just can go in there for one day and you'll be yeah. thrown out ah. but at the same time you need the foreign money to support a project like this yes. well because at that time it's um, as back in the you know in the mid uh, 2000 yeah. when HIV AIDS was a big deal yes. and, and because it was uh, a, a pandemic then yeah. um, and then a lot of foundation went in like the uh, Gates Foundation and uh, Bill Clinton Foundation were there to help oh. so we were very lucky because at that time China was very open also, it was before the um, Beijing Olympics, oh, 2008. Right. We, we went in at a time, it was okay. really good time, from 2004 to 2008, we were able to do a lot of work that could never have, can, could be done Why? Now. Why? Well, because the Olympics, because they were open to uh, the, the world. world. That was the uh, Wen Jiabo and Wu Jingtou era. It's very open. And they want, want to show the world China is opening up. Okay, so they don't want to expose any of these stories that depict anything other than 
positive and something that brings pride to the country? Is that why? No, actually, they they allow more uh, journalists in, and they can do a lot of stories, actually. So why is it that something like the story on the children being affected by AIDS was not is not something you could have done today? Well, why? because you, there's so much more restriction now. But back then, you can um, do the work, and and it's still okay because they also want to show the world um, after the SARS in China they want to yeah. show the world that they are very much aware of the public health issue and that was a good timing okay and right yeah so it was is sometimes I think making a documentary you really it's have to see the, the timing time. right even like for the Oscar I'm not saying that your film is not the best one but I'm saying that there's a time when things line up with a certain social issue yes. is something that comes to center stage yeah. that people grasp onto it at that time. So for example, um, there was a, a short film about uh, menstruation, period poverty that won yeah. you know, a few years ago. And there was a moment when there was the Me Too movement and the women's rights that brought attention to a subject that was something more universally yes. important. So it's really interesting. So if people are just listening, I'm talking to uh, filmmaker Ruby Yang and, and Lambert Yang, who is a distribution. I also want to talk about your work um, after the break. So let's take a quick break and I want to play another Hong Kong song so we can really reminisce on the wonderful days of Hong Kong but actually no we have something else lined up we have the Tang Lai Guan um, the Tang Lai Guan song Teresa, Ter Tang. Teresa Tang so yeah um, right, let's just do the announcements and then we'll come back with the Teresa Tang song
Tang. Wow, what a voice. What an era. That was Tammy Me. And I'm here with Ruby and Lambert going down memory lane with a lot of these um, sweet and more simple times, shall we say, in Hong Kong and China. So um, maybe you can talk about, let's talk about Dang Lai Guan. Um, Teresa Tang, who was she, Ruby? Dang Lai Guan, she's a very, very well known uh, singer from Taiwan. But in the 70s, well, actually early 80s, they talk about two Deng. One is Deng Xiaoping, one is Deng Laiguan, Teresa Tang, because that's the most influential uh, figures in China. Um, China, after the Cultural Revolution in the late uh, 70s, you know, Deng Xiaoping opened the uh, open door policy, and Deng Laiguan, the well, Taiwan song began to uh, went into China, and that generation, you know, they listened to the Cultural Revolution song, and they have this breath of fresh air, and playing Deng Laiguan, and in the um, uh, you know parlor in these little you know. In the movie, you can see it. Yeah, they it captured us. So, of an era where people just almost like were romanticized, yes. right? The life yes. during that time. Yes. Well, it's actually the new era that they can listen to these songs that talk about life and you know sweet love life story. and love story right. versus very sort of propaganda. propaganda. Right. And and people love that era because a simple time also in the 80s in China things were so yeah. there's a fresh of fresh air before things yes, changed right. right and so quickly so quickly yeah. when I first went to so I moved to Hong Kong in the late 80s and um, my first time to China I remember wanting to go to all these places where um, just to have a chance to talk to normal people and you know walking um, off the beaten path if you will and I never forget how, like, if somebody was curious about me, it wasn't about me. They were, I remember one man asked me, how much is it for a caddy of pork? His reference point was how much I paid for my meat. And that was his world. And that's what he wanted to get from the outside world. Today, what would they want to ask you if you were an outsider coming in? You know, it's so different. The whole context to what you think outside is because what is outside now it, it it's yeah. not it's not like no, that no more <laughs> it's not closed no, no more because they they can now see all kinds of uh, you know u.s movies right? they know the well, world some, right it's still quite censored though no um mm, no in the late, late, late last two years last two years right. censored oh, but okay. before you know that another thing is in china you know you can illegally see any movies you want right Beth, that's market. their way to learn the world. If you talk to any young Chinese people, yeah. uh, well, back then, you know, 10 years ago, they would watch all the films, and all the European films, in all the American films, you name it, because it's, if you can 
download illegally. Right. I don't know now. Now maybe people are not so curious about the outside world. But you know, when we were there, like, right? Oh, that's that's the education. But was that like the back then when you were living in China in the early two thousands? Did you feel that um, there was that sense of Western superiority, like everybody strive to be? Part of the West, or were they? Not, not really, because uh, the last ten years, the Chinese travel all over the world. Mm. So for them, uh, they are quite familiar with U.S. and Europe everywhere. Right. So for them, uh, the curious is not really as uh, in the old time when they uh, restrict only in China. They right. cannot travel overseas, but yeah. nowadays they travel all over the world. I mean, without the Chinese tourists. I mean, a lot of expensive uh, product uh, won't survive. Well, right. Like powder, like powder, like that kind of yeah. stuff, you know. Yeah. But just with COVID, it's very oh, different Oh, well, that's now. turned a whole different ballgame. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, um, Lambert, can you talk a little, because you were in the distribution, and back then you brought, you, you mentioned earlier, you know, um, iconic filmmakers in China like Zhang Yimou and all yes. these, Chiang Kai-ke, you brought their films to the U.S. Yes. Um, back then... What was what do you think the U.S.'s um, appetite was for Chinese films? Was it something of because it was almost the exotic other? There was you know there was a time obviously that yeah. era was a magnificent amount of films coming out of China, but at the same time was it something more culturally um, exotic for uh, us? I think it's more culturally exotic because uh, I think '87. I don't remember exactly. It's the year of the dragon. At the time, you have uh, China, the fifth generation filmmaker, uh-huh. and then Taiwan, you you have uh, Edward Young, and also Hao Hao Chen, yeah. and then Hong Kong, you have Wong Kar Wai. Right. So Not yet, though. Well, it was yeah, later. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, that was Yim Ho. Uh, later, later, Yim Ho. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, but at the time, yeah. Uh, a lot of interesting uh, uh, film from Asia. I mean, also Japan, also. Uh, that's why the American audience is really curious about it. Yeah. So then um, I think I, I was lucky in that time. So I, I can uh, bought in different type of better quality film from Asia and promote uh, in U.S. These weren't the Kung Fu genres. This was more of the arts. Art yeah, 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 yeah. Kung Fu, I mean, I also bought Kung Fu film because uh, to run a distribution company and yeah. also I have a chain of cinema. Oh. Uh, you do, it's expensive to maintain the theater. Right. Very expensive. So I need to have some money-making film. So the Kung Fu <laughs> films were the money-making films uh, for you? To support the... Uh, film. Ah. film. I mean, I, I have uh, every May, May the month, I have uh, Asian Film Festival. Where? So, uh, in San Francisco. Oh. The World Theater. In the World Theater. Theater. Where's the World Theater? On, On Broadway. Broadway. Oh. 644 Broadway. <laughs> 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 Near the... I'm also on board of the San Francisco International Film Festival okay. uh, for quite a while. Yeah. I'm the only active uh, Asian board member. So I always uh, get the film in the World Theater and then give it to the San Francisco International Film Festival uh-huh. and let them release it and then I push for it and then I try to push it to the outside theater chain, the mainstream theater chain. And so what type of people would watch these type of films? More uh, older, uh, uh, well-educated people yeah. or, or a lot of students. 
Okay. Uh, want to see interesting uh, uh, film from China or Hong Kong. Right. Right. So but then you have the Kung Fu film that's across. Uh, Kung Fu film also <laughs> a lot of crazy people come in. <laughs> I grew up with the Kung Fu genre. I grew up in San Francisco and my, my father would take me every week to the Chinatown theaters and yeah. watch the double feature yes. yeah, yeah, every yeah, yeah. weekend. And yeah, you know, yeah, we go yeah, to a Chinese yeah, food yeah, yeah. and then we watch the double feature and we go home. So yeah. that was a huge part of my childhood. Yes. And you know, that genre was special. I mean, it was commercial, yeah. but also that's the material that you got to use as part of the book, right? Yes. Um, all these wonderful, um, iconic um, martial arts uh, special effects and, and these uh, beautiful... Uh, Wang Feihong. Yes. Wang Dehing, that's what uh, he's the uh, master, the teacher. Yeah. And he made 160 films. Wow. Yeah. In what span? Wang Feihong. In the, the, uh, from the 50s to the 60s. Yeah. But that time, it's you can make a film in seven it, days. Right. <laughs> it's like TV. Yeah, yeah, you churn them but, out. But, yes, yes. but for, for us, uh, I think it's more important beside the business and, and uh, the Hong Kong film. Uh, in the world theater, uh, we did a lot of things for the com community. So every morning, now we have a morning show. We show the old Cantonese film. Oh, okay. That is all a uh, lobby car I collect is from that time and every morning we have around 100 old lady or older gentlemen are they mostly from Hong Kong no uh, no are they Hong Kong China Hong they Kong live China. in they live okay. in San Francisco okay Chinatown. okay so they, they new immigrants who uh, new no, or old they, we okay. don't know but okay. but there's some old, older people right. come who in every morning and see the Candidates room, right. room. connects them to their uh, home. Yeah, life. It, it just like Cannon a family. Yeah, like a family. Every day they went to uh, the. Are they the allowed theater. to bring in peanuts? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> in Hong Kong, you could bring, right? Back then, you could eat all these different things. They would bring the uh, dim sum in. Okay. They don't so have that's the San Francisco <laughs> version. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's not like the Hong Kong version of the. Yeah. Uh, for me, it become like a family because right. uh, all the other people come in uh, uh, every day the same group because they watch the film again and again. They they remember all the dialogue. Um, <laughs> I mean, the theater become like a church. Yeah, wow. They see the picture yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and then. They remember the moment when they were young and Hong Kong brought them back. And you Are you talking about even the older films, like the Yu Yu Chang Pin, the, yeah, the, yeah, the yeah, black yeah, and white? Yeah, 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 yeah. It's oh, all okay. that kind. Yeah. So if they don't come, either they're sick or they die. So okay. for for me, it's quite moving. So inspire yeah. her to make a film called A Moment in Time. Oh, so about these ladies who would come there religiously yeah. to watch these old films. Well, it's actually how um, a Chinese film affected um, the, the Chinatown, Chinatown community. So, right. yeah. yeah. It's very important. Yeah. Very important. Uh, since the theater closed uh, when I was in San Francisco, what a lot of people, um, 95. Okay. So at the time uh, when I was in San Francisco, a lot of older people would see me. I'm sorry, I don't want to see you anymore. So yeah. they miss that. Yeah, that's they important. They really miss that. That, that gathering. Well, you think about it. Any immigrant family, no matter what country or ethnicity you're from, you get dis displaced and you come to a place where it's not your culture. Yeah. And you're you're forced to live in a in a lifestyle that doesn't work for you. It's very 
hard, you know. It's really a lot of sad story because yeah. uh, most of the old lady live alone yeah. in a tenement house. Oh. And either take them a long time to come over to San Francisco. Yeah. Um, they find out their husband have another family. Oh gosh, yeah, that's so, so they common. So, yeah. yeah, so common in yeah. Chinatown. Yeah. So uh, we try to interview a lot of old lady, but it's hard. Yeah. So when did that film come out? Oh, um, because we moved to uh, China, China, so I delayed oh, okay. that. It came out in two thousand nine. Okay. But, but but we start making it before we left oh, um, wow. San see, Francisco. We started in two thousand two. Yeah. Okay. So, so I have two questions for you both, and because I know we we are pressed for time, and I don't know which one you want to answer first. One is that um, as a working couple, as a, as a as a husband and wife team, you know, how does that work in terms of your roles at home? Um, you know, how how you divide things? Because I know a lot of times. Okay, let me just back up a little bit and say I once dated this. Um, I had a boyfriend who was also a director, and I'll never forget, he one time said to me, you can never have two directors in the same family. <laughs> I'm like, what? <laughs> wow. For me, I, can, I, I say first, she's my boss. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> so the it. power dynamics, like, do you feel like, because um, Lambert, you know, Ruby is in the limelight, you know, an Oscar winner. Wow, everything's going to be attention to your presence, your work. And Lambert, how do you feel about all these years? I, I kind of uh, behind her all the time. Um, my uh, So far, for all those years, I mean, when we first met, uh, I know she's very smart, better than me. Oh, no. <laughs> I, yeah, yeah. And How did you meet? <laughs> At the art school. So oh, okay, so you're both there. So yeah. he brought me into film. I would never... Ah think about you thought you were going to be an artist yes so i'm an accidental filmmaker <laughs> and look at today right you can't plan your your life i mean i i think that's what you sort of draw into of one area by accident is the best yeah because you 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 just experiment and the same way we went to china it was we thought, well, we, we actually we did a lot of public service announcement. We'll try to do really good work to. Uh, the government paid you to do this. Actually, the U.S. Oh. Foundation oh. is is the Star Foundation and the Gates Foundation. Oh. So they're doing HIV works oh, in, in see, China. Okay. So and and then we out of that came the Oscar film. So we oh. didn't plan to make a. It came uh, to you. Yes, it, we we want to do films and actually we want to have the film show in China, but of course we don't want to have censorship. Right. So we pull it out. We we'll do a film that truly for outside. For, right. And then. The film got uh, really uh, recognized. How did China feel about that? <laughs> they don't want to talk about it. <laughs> really? It's, it's actually half-half. Some of uh, some of the people at that time they celebrated, uh, you know, my work. Yeah. And um, uh, official, uh, the official, like the health department, the Ministry of Health, love it because okay. it's, it's helped promoting, them. It's right, promoting, right? Right. And then the, of course, CCTV and the propaganda department. 
really did they didn't show my name when they have the list of Oscar winner. What? There's in the short film, there's no winner. No. <laughs> no. Yes. But why? Because shouldn't they be proud that you no. were no. making this film for China? No, it's because a, you're not Chinese. No, no, no. because the story. They, they <laughs> don't <laughs> accept the story. <laughs> the story. Was they don't want to expose the no. dirty laundry. Okay. And sometimes when I, uh, you know, I went to a screening, it's always there's a few. Uh, uh, mainland Chinese would ask why did you make this kind of film that's a shameful thing and there's always someone in the audience that will ask that question really they still see it as a stigma to even yeah. Yeah, talk yeah. about yeah, yeah. Yeah. AIDS and and, and also things that that's not really positive not showing China in a good light <sighs> wow no. okay. it's still the same yeah yeah, but then you know back to your point about how sometimes you feel like um, things move naturally for you right the yeah. reason you ended up coming here or because you got this opportunity do you feel like that's the way you work I mean do you how do you find a project when does it become your project like how you know how do you does it choose you basically um, it's that for for example, HIV AIDS is that something that I want to do, because it's um, something about underprivileged people, about children, and that came from work that I done in in the U.S. You know, um, but then um, and then uh, I did three other films in China, two other films in China. That's also after the after the Oscar. And someone said, "Well, there, are you interested in environmental of uh, uh, China environmental issues?" I said, "Yes." And then, then the the warrior Chao Gong was also about pollution, right? And that yeah. one got an a nomination. Yes. Uh, and then and that was the in two thousand ten. Ten, yes. Yeah. And then that was in between. I did a film about the um, gay in China. Yes. Can we talk a little bit about gays in China? Of course. Well, can we? Okay, but I really want to play the song too. Um, but we don't have that much time. So okay, we'll we'll talk before we play the song. Um, the song is Rouge by Anita Muimuim Fong, but the man who played her boyfriend, uh, Leslie Cheung, Cheung Got Wing, um, in Hong Kong, he was gay. Yeah. And, you know, there's a lot of controversy over being gay and, and, and being Chinese. So what are your thoughts on that? Uh, well, in China, it uh, was totally not acceptable. And um, a lot of the uh, gay men has to marry uh, right. married you know, because if you're not married and you are in a, working as a in the official level, you never will get promotion because there's something wrong with you if you don't mm -hmm. get married. Mm -hmm. So a lot of gay men were married, yeah. but it's the wife will be so unhappy. It's because I have someone who worked for me. He's a lawyer, and that's his story. He's gay. He's married. Um, his wife. His wife is totally stuck in this marriage. Unha being unhappy. But she knew he was gay, no? Not, not oh, really. really? No, oh, no, okay. No, that's well, really, that's not I fair. think it's not fair for the yeah, women. Yeah. Um, but uh, also the the gay film, the the main um, the tech, uh, protagonist, he's uh, a graphic artist from, from my workshop. Okay. So he was a, able to open up, but he, I think he never told his parents that he's gay, mm -hmm. but I think the parents sort of felt that he's gay. Mm -hmm. And so um, a lot of times in China, a lot of people um, come from uh, the, the countryside, yeah, right. village, so they can live a double life uh. in the city. 
as a gay man, whereas they might have a wife at home yeah. in the village. And that's what's so huh. interesting is that uh, the title original was Double Life. Okay. Uh, because that's really the big story in yeah. China is yeah. double life. Yeah. Um, and But you can have a double life if you're straight because you have the mistress and the first or second yeah. wife, right? So it's still... Well, yeah. But they're different. I mean, different gay, kind they're of... Different. They're yeah. different right, right. Um, because... Well, you have really freedom in in the in the in the city. city. Yes, I'm I just mean, thinking as a wife: is it worse to find out that your husband is gay, or to find out that he has another woman? I think what? it's more devastating for Chinese women to find out the husband is gay. gay. Really? Yeah. I, I think I would. Okay. Yeah. Because that's like there's no return. I think. Oh. Well, I mean, okay. as a mistress, that you know, you go out and you really. You know, get the woman. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it's like, I would get phone call from my lawyer's wife. Yeah. It's really bizarre. And, and just checking out oh, where he... You. Yeah, okay. checking out where he's where working he and stuff like that. Um, no, no. I mean, there's a lot of deceit. Well, yes. really a lot well, of lies. Because of the structure is so mm. strong, yeah. you have to find ways around it. And you're saying a lot of these people are from the countryside, like you say. They're not necessarily influenced by this big cosmopolitan city. Yeah. And it goes back to the gender identity yeah. issue of what you are, you know, naturally, yeah. right? And people still can't accept that. People still think of, um, you know, homosexuality as, as a disease or a stigma yeah. that it's embarrassing right and a lot about, yeah a lot of them actually their parents if they the shame, guy shame. said i'm gay the parents first thing we do ask them to go see a doctor yeah yeah, yeah. Like that's that that's what yeah so china's uh, yeah it's not just china it's every, it's so yeah, many yeah, places yeah. Yeah. but do you think after doing that film did that shift your perspective on gender identity at all no i you've always been quite open uh, very about open yeah, I think that um, at that time, especially before, because China was a one-child policy. Right. Not now. Recently, they don't have that. Yeah. But ha having bring a heir, having a kids is so important for Chinese culture in China. Yeah. Especially so because that's a double pressure. Yes. Yes. And and so to get married to to produce a right. kid. Right. So that's that's the thing. I mean, China is a fascinating place. Yeah. And there's so much story you can find I in know. the dog. And we can't have enough time to talk about so many things. So just to wrap it up, maybe we can talk and come back to the world of film and the world of music. We were talking about, uh, I had mentioned before, Muyin Fong, Anita Mui is an iconic uh, um, Hong Kong movie star and singer from the 80s mostly yeah. right yeah. Yes. um can you talk a little bit about her who she was and why we need to know who she is and let's leave us with this one song from that film rouge she's um as a very good uh singer and then she got cast in this film rouge by stanny juan and then it's really uh make her an actress and um and i think she's there's a recent film about her yes. life it's called and anita anita and i think she's really i would say the best time of um the sort of the singer at that era and you cannot find this kind of voice and mm. emotion uh, because she was uh, a street singer yes. before, grew up, right? Grew up very poor. Yeah. I think when she was around three years old, yeah. she started singing in Temple Street. 
right which yeah. is how do we explain temple street to people here Miyogai um, is is, is a, a lot of uh, people selling uh, things on the street yeah fortune telling fortune telling yeah. and not necessarily prostitution there yeah, yeah, yeah. there's yeah. including yeah. including yeah. everything yeah. 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 yeah well it's not the same as before before it was very there's a lot of street singer yeah operas uh, chinese opera singer you still have the fortune teller with you know picking the the bird mm. picking the fortune for you, right, right. and this was very alive in yeah. the eighties and yeah. nineties. Now it's sort of very lonely because it's COVID, and they're, they're selling all kinds of cheap stuff. Yeah, still though, right? Because yes. anybody who wants to go to Hong Kong, if you ever can get over there, yeah. it's still an interesting, fascinating street to explore. Yeah. Temple Street. Yes, but and good food. Yes, so the street food. Yeah, oh, street you make food. me miss Hong Kong so much. But to go back to the film that this movie that Anita Moy starred in, Rouge Yin Zi Kao, that story was based in this era and area. Very interesting, right? In Hong Kong yeah. history. Okay. Where the, the prostitute. You know, a lot of um, uh, the, the prostitution. Bordellos, right? Yes. They were houses where people yeah. could go. Yes. What era was that? It was the 30s, right? 30s. And that's now Sektong Pui becomes the, a lot of. Uh, uh, Hong, where Hong Kong close to Hong Kong, you yes. empty our station, <laughs> and then that's <laughs> so the like market. Convenience. Very convenient, and and there were a lot of theaters, and you know a lot of uh, sex worker, and and then there was also, um, I would say it's people who's not necessarily sell sex, but just people who go there smoking. Uh, Opium, opium right and 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 have fun and you know it's it's a different era and yeah. so and then they it's an interesting story they parallel the the past and the present because she come she was a ghost right. finding She's coming looking back but, for her but, lover but, but, yeah. because they both tried to commit suicide together yeah. Right, yes. with opium but she didn't she, she, died, and yeah. she died and the lover didn't, didn't die right right it's a beautiful film by stanley kwan but it's also um you know to think back about hong kong's very interesting and colorful history that we often don't see you know yeah. right now we see it as a concrete jungle we think of oh we think of jackie chan we think of bruce lee we think of yeah wong gawai too but back before that was this really really interesting pockets of time that we don't know anything about and the book that you both had um edited and published recently kind of has a preservation of that beautiful era. Can you just tell our audience what the book is called and where, you know, is it possible to get it somewhere? Oh, it's called Yesterday's Shadows, Today's Light. And it's unfortunately, it's only in Chinese, uh, traditional Chinese at this uh, point but we're working on uh, getting it in English version and is it published by Hong Kong U and uh, it's funded by Hong supported oh, okay. by Hong Kong U okay and you can get it on the Hong Kong Critic Association website and you can order it and um, it's actually we're really so running out because of, yes yes <laughs> but it is a beautiful book of all the iconic photos images of these films yeah. from yeah. you said the 50s and 60s which is an in-between time yeah. yes yeah. in Hong Kong's glory days yes, yes yes it's the very sort of people the filmmaker from mainland China who escaped you know from China during from the uh, you know from mm -hmm. Shanghai or from uh, uh, Guangdong 
and then uh, these artists and directors yeah. that uh, start to make films in, in Hong, Kong. Hong Kong, and they are very they they they're very um, educated. They're a good scriptwriter. Yeah. They have very uh, you know culture. It's not like the later on the uh, Hong Kong film, which a lot of them are just start from like rope, and they don't yeah, necessarily need to uh, be uh, especially the kung fu film. As long as like Jackie, they can play, and they don't need to really read the script. Right. But no right. that, script. Right. No but script. Back then, it was much more, more culture. structure, script, and it's always have a moral story because okay. they want to. The you ethics know, of uh, yes, Chinese think, yeah. thinking, of, yeah. very traditional, because they want the children to learn from these films. because yeah. there's no TV yet, right? And and right. so that's movies, the only way a media they they can learn. And that's why movie. We don't, you know, being an academic place here at K2H, we don't we we dismiss a lot of times the the depth of knowledge we can get from films. And that's why I think like film history, film studies. Um, um, looking into your work, Ruby, um, just ways that a person frames things and the historical context of the relationships that are sh you don't see in the production. Like you said, they were like, you know, ch people from China working with people from Hong Kong and, you know, all these transnational collaborations. And I think that's what the beauty is of uh, just in through the art of filmmaking so i hope that we have a chance next time you come into hawaii when you do move here you can share more about your work um, i know we're out of time but people are listening this is ruby yang and lambert yam here sharing all these beautiful stories of the times in hong kong and your time working in china um, and san francisco so thank you so much for being here and i'm going to play the mu yung film for all of us after talking about that so much. So thank you so much for both of your time. Thank, thank you. you.
有过最美的邂逅，共你有过一些风雨忧愁，共你醉过痛过的最后，但我发觉想你不能没有。在你每次抱怨的眼眸，像我永远不懂给你温柔。别再诉说我俩早已分手，像你教我伤心依然未够，但你没带走。梦里的所有，让你走，为何让你看不透？但求你未答望往日旧情，我已默然带着泪流，很想一生跟你走。就算天边海角多少改变，一生只有风中追究，不想孤单的逗留。在我心中的你，思海的你，今生不可不能没有。说我俩早已分手，像你教我伤心依然未够，但你没带走梦里的所有，让你走，为何让你看？就算天边海角多少改变，一生只有风中追究，不想孤单的逗留。但求你未淡忘往日旧情，我愿默然带着泪流，很想一生跟你走。在我心中的你，思海的你，今生不可不能没有。
That was Jackie Cheung, Cheung Hok Yao. If you know your Hong Kong songs and movie and, and music industry, Jackie Cheung was the guy of the 80s. He was one of the four kings. They called him Sei Dai Tin Wong, which was four iconic male um, pop stars, canto pop stars specifically, in Hong Kong that really kind of took the stage for a long, long time. And Jackie Chan was also an actor. Many times, a lot of these uh, big pop stars would become big, famous movie stars as well because that's just how the industry worked, right? I mean, not unlike here, oftentimes when a big pop singer would land a leading role in some film, even if that's not what they were trained in. But, you know, just listening to all of these songs and talking to Ruby Yang and Lambert Yam about their life during Hong Kong when it was a much more simple place and the culture of the specific Cantonese culture that they had growing up and then having that really interesting kind of a, a transnational experience going into China in the early 2000s to make films there was just, wow, what what an experience, what a rich life to to be able to have the you know the opportunity to go into different cultures and live and 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 thrive and to make important projects and films and and to say that they were you know a couple living together working together and supporting each other's work i find that so sweet and endearing because really today do you know any uh married couples who actually work together can can work and live together and do things together like that so harmoniously not many so i really think it's uh, you know very very sweet ruby and lambert thank you for sharing all of your information um i can only hope for more the next time you both come over here to talk more in depth about all the amazing films that you've been a part of so let's uh, switch it up a little bit right now you are listening to ktuh and this is quack talk here and it's time for the surf forecast what's going on it's 326 right now oh no sorry <laughs> wrong information it's 414 Tuesday on the 21st by the way the first day of summer and there is a heat wave going on in California for a lot of you I just got information from my sister who's living in San Francisco and what did she say she said it was like in the high 90s uh, where she lives outside of um, San Francisco kind of near off the other side of the bridge in Marin but you know Bay Area is usually kind of on the nippy side. So when they get a heat wave like this, people don't know what to do because you don't have air cons and you're just your everything kind of gets all heated up in a, in a very unbearable way. So, yeah, all of you out there in California for some reason or wherever you are and you are in a heat wave, uh, keep cool. Try to keep cool. Conserve energy. Right. But yes, I was here for the surf forecast, wasn't I? The surf forecast right now above average surf along south-facing shores will hold tonight through the day tomorrow before slowly easing through the rest of the week. Another run of the above-average surf is anticipated beginning late this weekend into early next week, and surf along exposed north- and west-facing shores will return to our typical summer levels tonight as the north-northwest swells move out. And surf along the east-facing shores will be small and choppy each day as the trades hold. Guidance does depict a small moderate northeast swell moving through this weekend from a batch of strong to gale force north to northeast winds of the off the west coast of the mainland. 
and the surf heights this afternoon. North-facing shores claims a 1 to 3 feet height. West-facing is 5 to 7 feet. South-facing, 6 to 8 feet. East-facing is 2 to 4 feet. Back here. Back in the studio, I'm Crystal. You're listening to Quack Talk on this Tuesday afternoon. And I hope you enjoyed my previous interview with Ruby and Lambert, who were just in the studio here from Hong Kong. Um, not every day you get to engage with an Oscar-winning filmmaker, now, right? Only here on K2H. And again, if you've missed my previous interviews with anybody that you particularly wanted to listen to, check it out on K2H SoundCloud under Quack Talk. I have all my different interviews over there. And I'm going to leave you with another interview now. Uh, because Hong Kong is on my brain. I had engaged with uh, a conversation with a lovely lady. Her name is Carmen Yao, and she's based, I believe, in London now, but she is from Hong Kong, and she is an activist. She's a feminist, and she's a fierce vocal uh, supporter of our body rights. And what do I mean by body rights? She's... uh, She's disabled, she cannot walk, but she is a very strong activist in trying to empower disabled people to live their own independent lives. And I find her work really provocative and important. And she goes out there telling people, you know, to explain a little bit about the Hong Kong living situation, if you're not familiar, is that you know, they don't call it the concrete jungle for nothing, is that it's really built all these high rises all over the place and you feel kind of cramped in this crazy dense thickets of, of uh, people really, you know, cramped into these high rises. And to that point, Carmen would talk about how there's a lack of privacy in general, but when it comes to uh, your personal, like your private sex life, if you were a disabled person, you, uh, and also this goes back to maybe the Chinese culture of being protective, but you know, you'd have, let's say you're, you're a young, a young person who is incapable of moving around by herself. A lot of times overprotective Chinese families would just take care of you for the rest of your life and watch you and make sure you don't have to do anything and be out there exposed to dangers of the world. But, um, with that protection comes a lack of independence right so what if you wanted to have i don't know i mean you wanted to explore sexually you wanted to you know why can't you have a partner i mean there's so many issues with sexuality and disability that uh, is so underspoken of and so carmen is a true true voice on this idea and so i wanted to share this interview i did with her um a little while back, this was when I was in Hong Kong, and I wanted to share this one with you because she's just so brilliant. So this is me and Carmen Yao talking about stuff in Hong Kong. Hi, Carmen. Nice to see you. Hi, Christelle. Good to see you again. Yeah, thank you for coming on to K2H uh, to our listeners in Hawaii. So we are here in Hong Kong. Yes? Yes. And hello, Hawaii, and I really love Honolulu very much. Oh, good, good. You got to come and visit again. So um, to explain to our listeners, um, see, I would like to talk about disability, um, but I really hate that term because it's really not a disability, but maybe the struggles that um, 
we deal with um, under the category of disability, but uh, focusing on the gender aspects. Like you as a woman, um, what are some challenges you faced? Are there gender inequalities within um, your community and things that you struggle with that are kind of a little bit deeper than just talking about disability in general? Um, you wanna share with our Hawaiian listeners, first of all, who you are, where you come from, what you're all about. I'll let you talk. Well, I think um, my name is Carmen, and uh, basically I'm a disabled person living in Hong Kong, and uh, I'm a, let me say, call it like a sex advocate in the disability community, but also in women's community as well. I was uh, the ambassador of Women's Festival last year in Hong Kong, and, uh, you know, nowadays we don't really talk about people with disabilities in the in a more inferior perspective. Actually, what we are trying to do right now is that we are repackaging the whole idea of disability as if it is one of the ethnic minorities, like a cultural community, like people with disabilities, we can be differentiated with different kind of language, culture, lifestyle, or people on the wheelchair, or people with visual impairment, as well as um, people with hearing um, limitations as well. So, yeah. for example, like sign language is actually a language instead of something that you can't speak. That's why you need to use sign language. Because sign language nowadays is like one of the ethnic language that we receive. And um, going back to the questions about sexuality, I think uh, this is the reason why when we look at disabilities as an ethnic or cultural minorities, we see sexualities very differently. We, we don't see it in a heterosexual normative. We don't see it like men and women. We don't really look into just about penetration sex. We are looking for more uh, physical, spiritual, emotional intimacy. So that's why some of our, you know, we call our Crip sisters, you know, the Crip sisters always says that, you know, we have very fruitful, creative, and uh, fun-filled, innovative, and pioneer sex lifestyle. Then That's really cool. Before, I just don't mean to interrupt, but have you seen, you must have seen that film called Crip Camp? Yes, of course, I did. I highly advocate that film after watching in the States. I don't know how it has been received in Asia and whether there's a different response to it because it's celebrating the body. It's normalizing the body and sexuality, which is very eye-opening to a lot of people who have these preconceptions of limitations and, and taboos and, and what you know, you can or cannot do in a wheelchair or with um, disabled bodies. So how, yeah, tell, tell me what you think about that and how the difference in the cultural um, perspective, like from more conservative or um, limited-minded, um, yeah, from Asia particularly. Well, I, first of all, I, I need to say I love Crip Camp yeah, very much. Me too. Very much. So and, cool. and, and it was so cool. And then, and, I, and the thing that I was thinking is, you know, I really wish that something similar would happen in Asia cities. You can, can you not? Have. But um, sadly to say that, yeah, we do organize camp, but in a very different perspective. 
I mean, in the majority of Asia, we still look at disabilities in more in a welfare perspective. That yeah. oh, we do you know provide recreation, leisure for you know like a one-off welfare thing, like a vocational trip for people with disabilities. Yeah, but they don't really get the whole idea, the spirit of trip camp. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I think we have a long way to go with that. But do you think there is a, I mean, how do we even start? I mean, you obviously are an advocate and you are the creator of change. So we need more people like you, but how do we even begin to move our minds? You know, Chinese culture is very kind of ancient <laughs> and we, we're still so patriarchal and these value systems still go back from thousands of years and many things still not, not changed. So how do we modernize that aspect of the body? Well, I think nowadays the, the key that would actually I'm trying to do, even I'm in Hong Kong or even in Asia, what we are trying very hard to do is talking about independent living because the majority of Asians, especially we need to be aware that the Asian culture, that we put the ethics of care strongly in families. So actually people with disabilities, the majority of them are totally depending on their family members for daily care. So that is, a, to me, that is a very big issue because if you depend on your families, your parents for every little care, actually don't you really have your own time, your own routine, yeah. or even your own freedom, or even your autonomy or privacy. Imagine. The majority of people with disabilities in Asia or even in Hong Kong, they don't even have their own rooms. They are living in the living room in an open public area. Imagine that no one's have their own privacy to yeah. keep their own sex toys or even watching porn on your phone. Yeah, so you let's talk about that because I think there are lots of um, elements that you just threw out there. So people don't really, maybe don't understand that, you know, the living situation in Hong Kong to begin with for anyone is usually a very cramped situation, maybe a family, a household of four in a very, very small space. And so adding on top of that is with um, disability. And like you said, if you're forced to live in a living room and going back to the my point about the chinese traditional mentality is that they think they're protecting you they don't want you to hurt yourself so never leave them alone kind of attitude but by doing this you're 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 suffocating a person's growth and 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 but then at the same time you recognize that the space is an issue for everyone and so we need to kind of work with that so you're battling so many different issues right well, that's the reason why I've been promoting independent living for people with disabilities in Asia, because um, first of all, we, we talk about, you know, no longer we talk about getting a caregiver or a, a helper, or we call it, I'm teaching, you know, our community to name our helpers as our PA, because it's much, the, the whole idea or the ideology is mm -hmm. totally different. Yeah. And, um, we, I'm trying very hard to encourage them to really get out of the house. I mean, like yeah. to, to join other social, you know, like an adult to join social occasions, gatherings and yeah. and go to pubs, cinemas and yeah. you know, on your own. Yeah, and it's very empowering. Most importantly, mm. Yeah, and most importantly, some of them actually, they are 
trying to pick up survival skills to live on their own, no matter how disabled they are. Yeah. For example, like I am, I am, um, I depend on a ventilator at night. Mm. I'm a quadriplegic. I can't with any part of my hands and arms, but it doesn't mean that it's too risky to live on my own. So I think that is very important that we need to teach people with disabilities the basic survival skills and how they can access to all sorts of formal and informal community support mm. to ensure that they can live independently in the community. Imagine like, for example, like nowadays we are having like a pandemic and even lockdown that mm. I'm not sure whether you're aware that actually a lot of charity services are shutting down. Oh, Imagine in Hong Kong, there's, you know, living alone, elderly, people mm. with disabilities, they live alone and probably they depend on charities, on yeah. NGOs, yeah. sending food, sending yeah. helpers, cleaners. Right. All these services are now stopped. Wow. Because of the pandemic. So that's why I keep emphasizing that, you know, we're talking about sustainability of caregiving and independent living that we can't totally depend on formal resources. Yeah. We need to think of different kinds of informal resources and support network. For example, like what I'm doing right now is because, yes, uh, the formal support for community is totally shut down. But I was lucky enough that I'm living in a location where I have a lot of disabled neighbors around my community. So we can be able to support each other. So that is one of the resources that we can come up informally, mm. that we can you know, support each other. And also that I have built my own, what we call the 911 list on my own, that if I have any kind of emergency, I can call my yeah. friend or someone. Yeah who can immediately come to provide help or constant help every day. Right, right. But that comes with you as an individual first. You first have to empower yourself to say, I can do this. And so you you want this, right? Some people will maybe think, well, I can't do this on my own. So we need to change that mindset first. It starts with that. Yeah. Exactly. So that's why, um, you know, in, in Cantonese, in Chinese culture, we have an, a, a, a term we call wupo. It means like married people who are living together. Yeah. And married women living together and they have, you know, provide support within themselves, themselves like a yeah. share home. Yeah. And this idea has been, you know, historically, you know, I think it's, it's brilliant for women. And this is the whole idea yeah. I am trying to reintroduce yeah. yeah it's a community again. yeah yeah i'm reintroducing introducing the whole new idea of upo to a hong kong community with yeah. people with disabilities yeah because a lot of us are living independently especially women with disabilities yeah so i think it's really important yeah we might not be able to live in the same house but at least we need in in a in an area so we call like Yes. Yeah, no, you work together and you make it work. And that reminds me of Crip Camp again, because I know that was just a summer camp um, where they spent the summers together, but that community building within a certain um, environment, a safe space 
to help each other and work uh, is so important. And the one thing about Crip Camp, if you haven't watched it outside who are listening, um, there's a lot of sexuality in it. And I know, Carmen, you have said off the bat that you're talking about like sexuality and porn and all these things. And in Crip Camp, they talk very openly about their sexual activity in the camp which is brilliant yes. didn't they even yeah, get yes. like didn't somebody get some kind of disease or something or i don't remember but it's just outrageous and and, and amazing that we can do well, yeah can i think that. i think that is also one of the things that is really interesting to see is that sexuality for people with disability is yeah. not something luxury actually is a survival lifeline for people with disabilities that they taste the pleasure they have the motivation the the the, the energy to leave and to struggle you know to face all kind of challenging and struggles and to share with you you know talking about sexuality in camp that reminds me that actually last year when taiwan was organizing their pride parade mm -hmm. and one of the workshop we have i i, I mean it was my great, great honor and my pleasure to be one of the signature events in Pride Camp in Taiwan. At the Pride Parade in Taiwan is that we organize a workshop to talk about how we can make love with people with disabilities. Great. And in the workshop, I talk more about really actual strategy, what kind of position, what kind of sex toys and how we can arrange a booty call or even online <laughs> dating. Is there a yeah, Chinese word for booty call? What's the Chinese slang for it? You're a pao. You're a pao. You're a pao. You're a pao. Yes. Yeah, as in? Yeah, it means like a date. So. Oh, okay. Okay. Got it. Yeah. All right. <laughs> right. So, cool. yeah. Like so, I was having a workshop there and then talking about how you arrange a booty call for <laughs> people with disabilities for example like you need to make preparations and communication and and to be honest i put a lot of good practice in bdsm into the whole arrangement uh -huh. by communication respect uh safety and, and yeah, constant same. and and these really important keywords that i put into my workshop to educate both people with disabilities and able bodies about respect and this sort of thing so it's fun to see you know a lot of people with disabilities are really interested in the workshop to learn more about your power about you know going from for a date or, or even a booty call and, and you're then, talking about positions also because even with like um normal you know people who have regular sex lives or whatever they don't even they're not educated enough to know like sexual positions or how to explore or pleasure themselves because especially in chinese culture we don't talk about it right when i had my talk show years ago it was like such a taboo to even talk about sexual positions it's like you can't be talking about this in public people don't like to but then yet it's such an innate need the desire and pleasure is so important for our well-being and that's what you're also advocating for you know Yes, so that's why um, a couple of years ago I started to write my own erotica okay. and to share about how such stories about people with disabilities. As unfortunately, it's still in Chinese. We are still looking for someone to do an English version. Oh, and um, yeah, I'm sure we can find I, someone. Maybe at UH at our university, there's somebody who does translation. Well, that's definitely I'm desperately looking for someone who can do a translation on this because. 
uh, to be honest, this um, this storybook and this erotica actually uh, some of the script movie script writer in Hong Kong actually is approaching me right now, and we are at, we are developing this whole thing to become a mo movie script now. Excellent. So I really hope that you know the original version can become you know translated into English. Um, the reason why I'm doing it is because we have. We are so lack of imagination about sexuality. But this Both goes back to the whole with, education and the mindset and the traditions and the culture, right? Yes, I, I believe that, you know, I've been spending a long, long years about talking about equal rights of sexuality for people with disability. And I found that it's not only about talking about rights nowadays, it's not talking about books. What we need right now is an imagination, an image. Imagine that, you know, instead of encouraging people to respect rights, equal rights, it doesn't really make a very good power empowerment. Uh -huh. What I'm trying to do is, you know, imagine that we, we change the whole culture. If disability is sexually appealing, then we don't have to talk about advocacy. Mm. Am I right? Exactly. And, it, and if you can relate that to the gender movement, it's the same thing. Why are we still trying to highlight people who were the first woman to do this or the first this? And it's like, it's just really tiring and old and we need to progress beyond that. And so your idea of imagination is probably critical to this conversation. Exactly. I think we are breaking the taboo when people say, I have no imagination. And when people think that, okay, people with disabilities are so fragile, so sexually vulnerable, imagine that the majority of media are still repackaging women with disabilities are very vulnerable for sexual violence. And yes, mm -hmm. I do agree that we have really having high risk of sexual violence, but I do believe that it doesn't, this doesn't bother to stop women with disability to develop themselves sexually as an adult. Absolutely. So what I'm trying to say is that women with disabilities, no matter what their shape, colors, ability, language, or culture, they should have equal right to say yes and no. Yeah. So this, I think this is what my, my message, and this is what I, I would say a battle, because this is the kind of battle, not only for um, the majority, the community, to educate people with without disability, I mean, the able-bodied people, but also at the same time, I'm trying to educate people with disabilities as well as their families, members, and their shareholders to learn that, you know, we have the right to say yes and no. It's beautiful, Carmen. I'm so glad you're sharing this. And this is not something just limited to people in Hong Kong. This is a, a global conversation about bodies because this is, we all have bodies and we need to uh, uh, confront with ourselves what war lim our limited views of things are. Um, in light of today's race issues, gender issues, you know, disability seems to fall under that umbrella, but then again, it gets little attention because it's like all drifting down. Um, in this short moment left, do you have anything you would like to share with our uh, Hawaiian listeners and, and beyond um, about anything you want to share? And I also want you to maybe give us your website for anybody who is interested in, you know, communicating with you about moving things forward and, and, and enriching everybody's attitudes. Well, I think my last 
I mean, my last message to, you know, people who are still listening to us, I think what we are talking about is not something, a new information that you really need to adopt that, okay, to need to think about, oh, I have to think of something that's really not related to myself. But sexuality for people with disabilities actually is a very good material and reflection of yourself to see how you look at yourself and your own body. Because seriously, disabilities is not really about physical thing. It's more about your own mindset, how you come out from your comfort zone and be adventurous. Come on, life is short. And, yeah. and I think everybody everybody should actually have a, you know, have a thinking about, okay, what am I supposed to be doing, you know, for the benefit of yourself and for the community as well. Yeah. So I hope, you know, everybody enjoys the message. And if I have anyone who is interested to search me, um, you can find me in Facebook and uh, just type Carmen Yao. Or if you are interested, you can type Suka, triple X stories, and you will find my erotica. It, is that your booty call book? Wait, what is your book called? Um, actually, I did a TED talk about this and okay. if you need to find it you can you search my name and and search tactics um tactics teen how women and you will find it and um and you can just search my name i think you will find it as great. well great wow thank you carmen i'm so excited i'm sorry we have such limited time but i'm very excited for you for all these wonderful projects that you're creating i'm going to try to get you a translator i want to do it if my chinese was good enough but we need to get it out there um, for the world to converse on this and let's just keep it going so proud of you so great thank you yeah, until the next thank time thank you Come so much us. and stay in touch yeah take yes, care we definitely all right back in the studio and i am in the studio with some cool gals who are going to take over the next slot i'm so excited now i don't have to like put it on auto motion because we've got DJ Mac. <laughs> I was just going to put you guys on All because right. you guys can introduce yourself. It's so nice to have like real people here. Know, we, already, we already talked when we weren't supposed to. I'm DJ Mac. I'm DJ Fabes. Yeah, we Yay. were Yay. super excited. And I was switching from Saturday, so woo. It was Saturday at the same time? Six to nine, so it's a little different. Okay, little so earlier. people out there, if you're listening, if you're tuned in on Saturday after Afternoons. She's over here now. Yeah. Tuesday's new time. Mm -hmm. Both of you guys, right? Yeah. All right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll be popping in and out. Yeah, occasionally. <laughs> Ready to take charge and do some crazy Ready stuff. Ready to take charge. charge. Excited. All right, all right. So um, this is Crystal and Quark Talk tuning out. Get ready for DJ Mac and DJ Fabe. Fab. Fabes. Fabes. <laughs> <laughs> tomato, right. tomato. <laughs> take it over, guys. All right. Have a great Tuesday afternoon and keep it locked on KTUH.